I think a number of you are Jays fans, right? We have a number of uh, avid Jays uh, followers. They're, they're not having a great season this year, right? Uh, not, hasn't, been a, hasn't been a great year from them. Uh, but when we first returned from Japan in 2015, the Jays seemed unstoppable. They were having an incredible uh, year. They uh, made it to the playoffs. They won the American League East Division that year. Um, and for those of you who followed them that day, uh, in, in those days, you will remember uh, a pitcher by the name of R.A. Dickey. He, was, uh, uh, he came, came to Toronto with a lot of promise. And uh, uh, despite what he did here in Toronto professionally as a, as a pitcher, for me, what, it, it, what, what most stands out to me is what he did off the field the life that he lived off the field. He was famous for his knuckleball. When he was in Toronto, he was only one of two players in the major leagues who uh, pitched a knuckleball. But in 2013, he wrote a memoir that was entitled, Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball. He won the Cy Young Award the year before uh, he came to Toronto. But Dickey struggled both personally and professionally for many, many years before finally finding his stride. He, he wrote, I never wanted to look inside me because I was afraid of what I'd find. And so he carried, he describes carrying around feelings of shame and worthlessness uh, about who he was and about uh, what was in his past. He, he considered suicide at one point. And finally, it was through his faith in Christ that he found the courage to face his demons, to look inside his heart and begin to deal with some of the things that he knew were keeping him from being the person that God had called him to be. Uh, in his past, there was, as an eight-year-old, he faced abuse at the hands of a, uh, of a female 13-year-old babysitter who, uh, who was charged with his care, uh, and then a much more violent act by an older teenage boy. And he said that it was his unwillingness to deal with his past that made him less of a father, uh, less of a husband, less of a pitcher, and less of a man. But God finally gave him the courage to deal with his heart. But as he reflected in his book on his journey through that dark period of his life and then through the other side of God helping him to uh, unpack some of the things that were keeping him from being who he was to be, he gives this sober warning. He said, if you aren't willing to, to face your demons, you might as well wrap them up with a bow and give them to your children. Because they will be carrying the same thing unless you are willing to do the work. It's a reminder that so often we are deceived into thinking that sin is just something that affects us. It might affect our, affect our relationship with God, but it feels very personal and individual. And he reminds us, what the scriptures would remind us, that it is always something that affects more than just us. It, it, it infects the people that are close to us. It impacts the people that we influence. And so he gives us that uh, reminder. Last time we began our series on the courage to lead, and we said that 
for many people, are afraid to take those steps of uh, taking that next step of what God would have us to do. Uh, many people are, are afraid to take steps of leadership and ministry. Uh, many people are afraid to take leadership in their family. Uh, many people are even f- afraid to take leadership in their careers. There are things that Dickie would say, things that are holding you back from being all that God has called you to be. And so what I want to do this morning is to invite you and I will invite myself to, do, uh, to, to receive God's invitation to look into our own hearts, to deal with some of the things that would otherwise stand between us and the fullness of the life that God would call us to. And to help us, we're going to, to uh, help us in doing that, we're going to look to God, we're going to look to his word. And so we're going to uh, op- open God's word to Judges chapter 6. And I'm going to read from verses 25 to 32. Uh, Judges chapter 6, verses 25 to 32. Uh, continuing on from the passage that we began uh, in the first uh, message in our series a few weeks ago. Judges 6, 25 to 32. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So good Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who's done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerob Baal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. This is the word of God. Now, to our modern ears, this sounds like a very, very strange and unusual story, right? It couldn't be any less 2018 Canada than, than what we are reading right now. It's, it's uh, uh, an unusual story, but I believe it contains crucial truths that we need to face if we are going to face our demons. The first thing that I learned from this passage is that God always starts with the heart. He he doesn't just launch Gideon into ministry. He doesn't just send him into leadership. Even though he's told them in advance that is ultimately his plan, he's not going to start there. He starts where he always starts, or he so often starts in our lives. He starts by dealing with the heart issues in his life. Today's story of Gideon begins in verse 25 with the words, that night. 
And if you're just brand new here this morning, you might be thinking, well, what night is that? Uh, uh, But if you were here three weeks ago, you know that that night was at the end of this, this remarkable day where Gideon met the angel of God. He had been crying out to God for deliverance as all in Israel had done and they were being oppressed by a, uh, a, a nation called the Midianites. And as he called out, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And he thought at first, I don't know if this is, I don't know if God is sending me, I don't know sure if I can trust what you're saying. And that angel responded by, with fire and shock and awe, takes his sacrifice and literally it, it consumes it in fire. The angel of the Lord disappears and he is left utterly stunned by this encounter. And he decides to do what, what people in scripture often do. He responds to this amazing encounter with God with worship. He worships him uh, uh, with, with an altar. He builds an altar to God. And at that point, we're expecting, okay, he's had the encounter. God's promised to deliver him through Gideon. We're thinking God's going to maybe lay out the military tactics. Maybe he's going to give him some sword lessons, or maybe he'll kind of spell out a little bit of a strategy for how they can make a surprise attack, something that will get some impression of how God is going to accomplish this task that he's uh, of delivering the, the, the Israelites from Midian. That doesn't happen. Instead, he calls on Gideon to do something a little bit along the lines of what we saw Jonathan and Rachel do this morning, to take his private worship and make it public, to make a, uh, a public confession of his private faith. Some of you have never done that, this mo- done that right? Some of you have never taken this private faith and made it public. You, you may have n- never made your faith public in baptism. But if you're honest, maybe you've never taken your private faith and made it public anything. It's just between you and God. It, it feels very real, feels very personal. You know God is, is with you. You feel God's presence, but it's a personal thing. And that's a great place to start. But as the scriptures would remind us, that's not where God would leave us. He takes our, public, our, our private faith and he makes it public. He takes our private altars and he calls us to turn them into public confessions. A private altar, if it's real, has to become a public fa- confession. For Gideon to do that, it would involve him coming face to face with some private demons. As it turns out, Gideon's father is something of a local priest. He's got uh, an altar to Baal uh, in, on his property and an altar to Asherah. Uh, they were uh, two of the, the Canaanite fertility deities. And as, as, it, as it becomes clear later in the story, these were not just uh, Gideon's father's uh, private uh, collection. They, when they're, when they're taken down, the whole men of the town gather. It, this is a community, uh, a community travesty. They are, they are all as, as, a, uh, as a group concerned about what, what's taken place. Altars to Baal were made of stone. And so that's why it describes he's got to get two bulls to pull them down. Whereas uh, altars to Asherah were 
made of wooden poles. And so he cuts that one down. Interestingly, Gideon's name actually means chopper or hacker. And so you, you can picture him literally chopping down this, this Asher pole, and, and this became his defining moment. It became a, a, a defining characteristic of how people would uh, later see Gideon's life. Once he pulls them down, he replaces them with an altar to the Lord. He had hacked down that Asherah pole. He cuts up the wood, starts a big fire, puts on his father's prized bull, and offers it as a sacrifice to the Lord. He does that because false worship was one of those gifts that R.A. Dickey described that his father had gift-wrapped and handed down to him. It was something that was forever going to limit his influence and his ability to have a, uh, a proper relationship with God unless it was confronted. In Japan, I've talked to people who have done almost exactly what Gideon did here. Not a ton of people, but maybe about a half a dozen believers that I've met who have literally inherited uh, idols of wood or, or stone and, uh, uh, and, and have had to deal with them as they've come to Christ. Or, or people who have put their faith in Christ and realized that they have been carrying around good luck charms and amulets. Uh, often uh, cars in, in Japan would, would almost always have a, uh, a, a good luck charm that they had gotten at the, at the beginning of the year from the local shrine, and it was there for protection and for people would, you'd ask them about it, and they, some would say, yeah, I really believe in this. Others would say, well, just in case, you know, it's, it's something there that, that uh, um, may, maybe it works. I haven't had any accidents this year, maybe. And regardless of people's uh, uh, intentions or uh, as people come to Christ and they read the scriptures, they realize if... I'm going to walk with, this, walk with this Savior. I'm going to have to deal with some of the false altars in my life. And so they burned them or disposed of them so they wouldn't have power over them. Most people, though, don't have altars to bail in their backyard, though. Most of us have false altars that we built in our hearts. False objects of trust, of worship, things that have their hold on us, even though they're less visible. It's, not, it's, it's, not, it's far more subtle because we can't see them. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of spiritual weapons like, like prayer and the scriptures and, and, and faith and fellowship. And he says, these weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. He's talking about the kind of strongholds that Exists in our, exist in our, in our hearts and minds that keep us from moving forward in our relationship with Christ. Then he adds, we destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I wonder if you've done that. I wonder if you've taken the resources that we have been given in Christ and done a serious examination of some of the idols in your heart and torn them down through the resources that God has given us. 
Some of you, like R.A. Dickey, walk with feelings of shame and worthlessness. They become strongholds that keep you from going forward in your relationship with Christ. Others have strongholds of pride, privilege, prejudice. For other people, there are strongholds and false altars of lust and greed, bitterness. And your worship will always be stunted until those false altars come down and you replace them with a pure, uh, a pure worship to God as he would call us to. You have spiritual weapons in Christ to break down those false ideas that would hold us. We've been given resources in Christ to be able to deal with the things in our heart that would otherwise continue to infect us. And until we do, we don't experience the fullness of life that God wants for us. And so I want you to ask yourself this morning, what are some of the private battles that are keeping you from public victory? What are some of the false altars that are keeping you from pure worship? And what are some of the demons in your heart that are keeping you from the kind of influence that God would desire you to have? God always starts with your heart. On your own, you might not have the strength or the courage to deal with it, but God assures you he is with you. And as we see in this passage, even Gideon is not alone. God is with him at each step of this process. The next thing this passage teaches me is that God doesn't tolerate rivals. He's more like a spouse than a friend on this count. He's kind of exclusive in the kind of relationship he wants to have with us. And he doesn't take very kindly to religious adultery. God doesn't tolerate rivals. Some of you may be thinking that this whole act, again, it feels so un-Canadian, this act of tearing down the altar, it feels kind of over the top. It's, it's too drastic, right? Many people would find his, effect, his actions here offensive, frankly. And if you're feeling like that, you're not alone because in verse 30, the men of the town, when he does this, they get so angry, they want to kill him. Find out who it was that did They don't even care why he did it. Tell me who it was that did, that did this because we need to kill him. They, this is not like par for the course. Oh, yeah, he just tore down the altars and set up a new. This is not like what they did all the time. This was, in their minds, drastic. Now, this was under the old covenant, and so our context isn't exactly the same. There are some, some issues of context we need to deal with. But we need to understand that God is a God who doesn't tolerate rivals. He reveals himself as a jealous God. He's an exclusive God. And it's important that we see why God asked Gideon to do something so drastic, because if we don't get this, if we don't get who he is and what he does, then we will misinterpret and misunderstand the kinds of things that he's trying to do in our lives. When we looked at the beginning of chapter 6 last time, we saw Gideon and the Israelites beaten down, right? The Midianites for seven years had been sweeping in at harvest time, stole their crops. And so Gideon and the other Israelites were praying a prayer that you and I have prayed like a hundred times. You know what the prayer was? God, 
change my circumstances, fix them, and give me relief, and give me peace. Like, have you never prayed that? Fix my circumstances, give me relief, and give me peace. And God wanted to answer those prayers, and ultimately he would, but God seldom answers those prayers exactly the way that we might have expected. Because what those, those three um, prayers that we often pray forgets is that often it's not the, just the circumstances that need fixing. See, the Midianites weren't really the problem. The Midianites were a symptom of the problem. They weren't the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem was that the people of God had turned their backs on God and so uh, walked into the, the problem that they found themselves in. In Deuteronomy 4, God had warned Israel that if they worshipped idols, they would forfeit his protection and they would come under the, 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 the judgment of the surrounding nations. He said it was going to happen. He didn't say it just once. He said it timeless again and again, trying to convince them that walking away from God, putting their trust in someone or something else was a dangerous proposition. That's not to say that everything bad that happens in our lives is a result of something bad that we've done. It's not to say that every time something goes wrong, we say, Oh God, what are you judging me for this time? That's not what we're saying at all. But what we are saying is that when we pray, God, fix my circumstances, give me relief, and give me peace, that we also need to stop and say, is there something in my life that keeps bringing about these problems? Am I exasperating my circumstances? Is there something you're trying to teach me, Lord? We need to add those prayers because whether, we're, whether they're on the radar or not, they're often a part of the equation. And if we're not willing to ask them, God will eventually get us around to them and eventually confront us with those questions. God's not someone that we serve with a divided heart. The Canaanite religion was completely eclectic. It was syncretistic. So even on uh, Joash's uh, property, uh, Gideon's father, they've got, they've got a plot of land, put up the altar to Baal, right beside it, put up the altar to Asherah. They could, they could combine those two, no problem. And if Gideon had come back and said, hey, everybody, I've met the living God. An angel just appeared to me. I was thinking of putting up a third altar. The men of the town would have celebrated, they'd put him up on, their, on his shoulder and say, great, we've got another one. They were into adding gods. But God isn't like that. The God of the scriptures is more exclusive. He wants our undivided attention, our undivided loyalty. Again, he's a little bit more like a spouse than he is like a friend. It's a little bit like if I went to Jennifer and said, Jennifer, I love you as well. It doesn't have the same ring to it. If I went up to Jennifer and I said, I, I care for you very deeply, I love you so much, in addition to another small 
select group of, of other fine women. It doesn't, doesn't communicate the kind of thing that a spouse wants to have communicated. And, and that's the kind of God that we serve. He, he doesn't want to just be added to the harem. He's looking for an exclusive relationship with us. And he will call us to tear down the false altars and the false worship that we give ourselves to. He's jealous not just because he likes being the center of attention. He's jealous because all of our other lovers are false lovers. He's jealous because there are no other gods. And so when we treat other things like God, they become a snare to us. They become very dangerous to us. Even when they advertise themselves as, as good and helpful, they become a snare to us because we worship them and trust them as God when they are not God. We look to them to save us when they will not save us. We look to them for help and fullness and significance, and they do not return. Instead, they bind us, and they draw us away from the one who would otherwise help us. Trusting in anyone or anything else is dangerous. Just as a side, just to give you an example of this, uh, I told you that Asherah, that Asherah and Baal were fertility deities, right? Uh, Baal was kind of the male deity, and Asherah was the female de deity. One of the ways that you encourage the fertility of your land and you worshipped Baal and Asherah was through religious prostitution. You can see the kind of attraction, first of all, that that would hold to some in the, in, in the community, and you can see the kind of pull it would hold over, over a society. And, and to try to add worshiping the Lord alongside that would, would just forever stunt them in something that would be perverse and, and, and untrue and unhelpful. In Matthew 6.24, Jesus warned, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he adds, you cannot serve God in money. He could have mentioned any number of things, but just to throw out an example, just to deal with something that many people will inevitably look to for their trust inevitably look to for their sense of significance, inevitably look to for their status, inevitably look to for their hope. He says, yeah, for many people, that's money. For many people, they don't have the, the, the pole up to Asherah anymore. They don't have the stone statue to Baal. But they're worshiping money in exactly the same way that many people did those idols in in, in in other days, and it'll destroy true faith. So we are concerned as a, as a church when, when we, we, we look at, at, our, at, at our budget or our, our, our finances and we think, boy, the, there's a lot of people that must not be uh, giving sacrificially or, 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 or tithing. It's a problem, not because of our budget. It's a problem because it's a, it's a symptom of a divided heart. It's, it's a concern to us when we see uh, people not, not serving, not serving consistently over long periods of time because it makes us wonder, 
if they're not serving here, who are they serving? Who has their loyalty? Who has their allegiance if it's not God? It's a concern when people say, you know what, love to read the Bible. I just don't have time for it. Don't have time for time with God in in the scriptures. It's it's not a concern because we just want everybody to read the Bible, although we do. It's a concern because if you don't have time for God, then who's getting your time? Who's got your attention? Who gets your allegiance? It's a symptom often of a divided heart. And that's why it's such a concern. Confronting things like divided loyalties and heart idols is scary business. R.A. Dickey said for 25 years, he just carried it around with him. And it just ate him up inside. He refused to deal with it. Refused to open, open up his heart. Refused to deal with the issues in his life. And it just ate away at him. The good news is that God can transform the fear that would keep us from doing that hard work. I think that was a point, actually, in God choosing Gideon. I can't, I can't think of any other reason. Because he's like the poster child for the fearful follower of God, right? He, he, his main quality is he's the coward, the f- man full of fears. And God seems to deliberately choose him to say, just watch how I can work through a fearful person like Gideon. God can transform our fear. Listen to what it says of Gideon in verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him. And you're thinking, great. So far, so good, right? And here's where it gets ugly. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, Gideon is a grown man, but he still lives in fear of what his parents will say. He's, he's an accomplished man in many ways, but he's afraid what his neighbors will think if he comes, comes clear with his confession for the Lord. The fear of people is often what keeps people from moving forward. Fear what people will think. Fear what my parents will say. Fear what my coworker will say. Keeps people in bondage. It's, it's often what keeps people from turning to Christ. Uh, the fear of people is often what people, keeps people from being baptized. Just being public with something that is private. It's a fear of people that often keeps people from resisting temptation. It's too easy to go along with what everyone else is doing. It's too easy to say yes when in your heart you know that the answer is no. It's fear of people. I don't think I can handle the rejection. I want their acceptance. The courage of faith confronts that fear. It's not that the fear goes all away all of a sudden. It's that through faith you become gripped by a greater fear. You become wrapped up in a fear that is greater for someone who is greater. Your healthy fear and reverence and respect for God becomes greater than the lesser fears that you feel for the people around you. 
Psalm 21, 27, 1, David said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I want you to see what's, what he's saying there and why he's saying it. Because David was someone who had lots of things to fear, right? He would say that as a child, he was confronted with a bear and with a lion. Like, I, I don't know how many of you have have. Uh, taken on a bear at, uh, as, as a child. As a, as a young, young man, he faced the giant Goliath and then was stalked by the King Saul. He faced countless battles. He had plenty of people to be afraid of. And so when he says, whom shall I fear? It's, it's not just a rhetorical question. He, he had loads of people to fear. But the point is that he says he feared God more than he feared those people. He feared God more than he feared the lion. God was stronger and he meant more to David than those who would turn on him. And so often that is the critical issue. If you were to examine the fears in your life, the times when you really feel that you are kept forward from kept from moving forward because of some fear, it is typically from one of two places. Either there is a person in your life who feels bigger to you than God, stronger, more powerful, just, they just feel bigger than, than whatever you believe about God, or there is someone or something that is more precious to you than God. And losing their opinion is much more, much more to you than losing his opinion. And so you turn your back on God, you give yourself to the fear of people, and you walk in a path of bondage to, they become your idol, your altar, you worship them to get their acceptance because they feel more powerful to you at that moment. And it robs God of the relationship that he wants with us. God's a jealous God. He doesn't tolerate rivals. Gideon's fear made him hide his obedience to God. He brought down the altar, but he did it secretly at night. And I love, I love what this says about Gideon and his faith. Like, do you think that God's going to let him get away with this? Do you think that he's going to chop down the altar, set up something to the Lord, and like nobody's going to ask, I wonder who did that? Do you think they're not going to find out that it's getting... At least they're going to draw straws at some, time, at some point. And you know that God is going to have him come up with a short straw. Oh, yeah, it was me. You know, you, you know that God is going to bring it out into the light. And yet we still play our games with God, don't we? We still hide and think, oh, maybe nobody will see. Maybe nobody will notice. God notices. He notices because he knows that Gideon needs to be noticed. He knows that Gideon needs to take this private secret faith of his and bring it out into the open to make it clear, to make it clear to the people around him, to make it clear to his family, make it clear to his fellow neighbors. But he, when he brings him out into the open, he doesn't leave him there alone. He'll stand with him. He'll protect him. And when it was all over, this Gideon, he gets, he gets a new name. Like his first name was pretty cool. He was a hacker. I, I love that name. He's a chopper. 
You know, he chops down false, false altars. That's, that was a pretty good name to begin with. But he's given in verse 32 the name Jeroboam, which means let Baal contend with him. It's like this guy took on like gods and stuff. Like, and, and, and we're going to wait and see what happens to him. And they, I think every day they kept chasing. Anybody, anybody heard what happened to, to Gideon today? Nothing? Like nothing? He, you saw what he did to those, to those altars and nothing's happened to him yet? And so every time they called him Jeroboam, they would be reminded, hey, that's the guy that chopped down the altars. And Baal hasn't done anything about I don't think Baal can do anything about it. I don't think Asher is like a thing. I think, I think they're kind of just lies that we've been believing and buying into, and they've been holding us in bondage, and I don't think it's real. And so his name, every time they said it, his name became a testimony to the power of the true God and the impotence of these false gods that the people had worshipped. That's the kind of thing that God does in people's lives. When we open up our hearts and allow him to confront the fears, to confront the strongholds and the idols in our hearts. And so I want to encourage you this morning. I want to ask you the question, do you have the courage to face your demons? Do you have the courage to deal with the strongholds in your heart? I want to encourage you to find your, find your courage in Jesus' victory. Because I want to jump from Gideon to tell you about Jesus Christ. When he came, he didn't just have a private faith. It wasn't just me and the Father with Jesus. He declared that faith in, in baptism. And it was so, it was so wild. It, was so, it wasn't like John and, Jonathan and Rachel or my testimony or any, any of yours. You know, I was a sinner and I realized that I needed forgiveness and this is a symbol of my claim. Like, Jesus shows up to be baptized and John's like, like I need to be baptized by you, man. Like, there's, I, like this is just strange. This is unusual. And Jesus said, like, just go with it. We need to do this. Because I'm going to make public what could otherwise be perceived as private. So Jesus is baptized. But you know what happens immediately after his baptism? Does Jesus launch into a public ministry following his baptism? It says immediately the Spirit leads him into the desert. In Matthew 4.1, it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you think, why on earth did he do that? Jesus didn't have any skeletons in his closet that he needed to confront like you and I do. And so what Jesus did was he went into not having the demons in his heart to confront like you and I do. He was led into the desert and he confronted Satan himself. And through the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word of God, he experienced victory over, over, this, over Satan. And that, Satan, that victory over Satan was a victory on our behalf. So that those who would ever follow Jesus would always follow him with the conviction that in him, I can have that victory. In him, I can deal with the mess and the darkness of my own heart, and I know that it's not going to end in my defeat. I know that it will end in victory because it will be Christ's victory. It will be his strength on my behalf. And so I want to encourage you this morning, don't keep walking around with the shame. 
Don't keep walking around with feelings of guilt or worthlessness or lust or greed or bitterness or whatever you got packaged up in there ready to hand off to the next generation. Hand off to your children and the people that you influence. Don't give them that gift. Find strength in the courage of Jesus Christ in his victory to deal with your heart so that when you pass something on to your children, you, have, you can pass something on that's, that's of value. Pass something on of the, the testimony of, of God's faithfulness in your life as you, as, as you would share that with the people that you can influence. Go out with, 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 with that hope as you would deal with some of the issues that God might put his finger on. And can I lastly encourage you not to do it alone? In the same way that you can't just have a private faith with God, it needs to be public, when you deal with your heart and God puts his hand and finger on issues in your life, don't just do it like this. Find someone else that you can share. Find someone else who will pray with you. Find someone else who will lift you up and encourage you. Find someone else who can speak grace into your life when all you hear is condemnation from your own voices. Find the courage to share it with someone else, that you can walk that path towards greater wholeness with someone else, even as you look to Christ for his victory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we need your courage this morning to deal with the demons in our own heart. We don't want to keep limping along, and so we pray that you'd help us to be honest with you, Pray that you'd help us to be honest with others. Help us to see the rivals that we let get in the way of our relationship with you. And Father, give us courage to tear down the false altars that we've built. As we do, Father, help us to keep our eyes on Jesus' victory. He's our hope, he's our confidence, and our strength in temptation. We pray in his name. Amen.